19 museums and galleries, plus a national zoo. That's what makes the Smithsonian Institution the world's largest museum and research complex. But not all of the Smithsonian's treasures are in Washington, D.C. One of them is right here, dead center. We hope to have it for the long term. Hi, I'm Katie O'Toole from the Center County Historical Society. A funny thing happened on the way to interviewing Ken Martin for Dead Center's first podcast on the inverted Jenny Stamps. I found out about a Smithsonian exhibit that is housed at the American Philatelic Center. That's right, it's not on the National Mall. It's in the Match Factory in Belfont. And here's the thing. This exhibit is not a rare stamp. It's not a collectible postcard. It's an entire post office. And not a replica either. This is the real deal. It's the Headsville, West Virginia Post Office and General Store, which was a a post office and general store from 1860 to 1914 operating. It's on loan from the Smithsonian's Museum of American History. That's Ken. He's the chief operating officer for the American Philatelic Society. They had it on display there from 1971 to 2006. And then it moved to Center County? How did that happen? Oh, wait, let's go back even further to find out why the Smithsonian had the Headsville, West Virginia post office to begin with. The story of the Headsville post office begins with Henry Head. In 1858, he was appointed the postmaster of what was then a town called Sheets's Mills. It was a rural outpost in northern Virginia. It was just far enough west of the Blue Ridge Mountains that when the northern and western counties separated from Virginia during the Civil War, Sheets's Mills ended up in the new state of West Virginia. A few years after the war, the town was renamed Headsville in honor of its postmaster. Although Henry Head might have been one of the few residents of Headsville, which remains a tiny, unincorporated town even today. It was a very small, rural town. Um, as I understand it, this was basically the store in, the, in Headsville. Uh, it was not only the post office, but a general store. That's apparent as soon as you step inside the Headsville post office. On one side are shelves stocked with an eclectic mix of goods. A pair of women's high-buttoned shoes, slate tablets, a sewing machine, a washboard, eyeglasses. Behind the postmaster's desk are drawers labeled with their long-ago contents. Knitting pins, gate buttons, tape, combs, marbles and flints, pearl buttons. And there are tins, bins, and other containers. We actually have two egg shippers. Believe it or not, at one point in time, it was common for you to get your eggs through the mail. They, they shipped the eggs through the mail to you, and um, I guess most of them made it safely. Most food products were sold in the store in bulk. And to judge from the size of the post office and general store, Headsville shoppers did not have say, 57 varieties of Heinz products to choose from. The items in the store today are non-perishable, except for a single jar of candy that kind of looks like it's in the process of perishing. So don't eat any. Although the items on the shelves are authentic period pieces, they're not actually from the Headsville Post Office and General Store. Most were donated by Center Countyans but they represent some of the merchandise that was still on the shelves when the Headsville store closed. 
Ed McDonald is kind of an authority on the Headsville General Store. Well, Henry Head was, would have been my great-great-grandfather. I talked to Ed by phone after tracking him down through his brother-in-law, who had posted some beautiful pictures of Headsville on his Facebook page. It turns out that Ed is an office holder in the Mineral County Historical Society in West Virginia. Some 30 years ago, as a graduate student, he produced a radio documentary about the Headsville Post Office. Among others, he interviewed his own family members for the documentary. My dad told the story that there were some old patent medicine pills in the bottles on the shelves that uh, he would find from time to time. And when he ran out of BBs for his BB gun, he would take the, the what, some of the pills out of the bottles and use them as BBs. That would have been sometime in the 1930s, after the store had closed. My dad speculated that it was probably economics that put the store out of business. The post office had been gone for more than a decade by the time of the Depression. A new postmaster at a different establishment had taken over the job. So the Headsville shop was just a general store when it finally closed its doors. It was just sort of closed up and, and, and left to stand with a lot of its contents in it. Until the Smithsonian came calling. 1969, they had one of the Smithsonian, somebody who acquires items from the Smithsonian, going around the country looking for items. He came across this deserted building that had been a post office, thought it would be appropriate. Appropriate for what? Well, to help tell the story of this single institution that had directly touched virtually every American citizen since the colonial era. In 1753, the British Crown appointed Benjamin Franklin to be the first postmaster general of the colonies. Franklin knew the importance of spreading news and ideas across the vast territories that separated towns, villages, and farms in the colonies. One of his first acts as postmaster general was to inspect every existing post office in major towns. He invented a rudimentary odometer that he attached to his carriage on these trips and he hired men to follow his carriage. They set up stones to mark the miles along the post roads. That allowed Franklin to measure distances and establish the most efficient mail routes. Franklin lost his job in 1774 due to some rather serious disagreements with his British bosses. You probably remember how that ended. With a revolution, a declaration of independence, and a new nation. The role of communications in uniting the 13 colonies against the mother country was reflected years later by John Adams, who marveled. The complete accomplishment of it in so short a time, and by such simple means, was perhaps a singular example in the history of mankind. Thirteen clocks were made to strike together, a perfection of mechanism which no artist had ever before effected. Leaders of the new nation valued the exchange of information so much that the first article of the U.S. Constitution reads in part, Congress shall have power to establish post offices and post roads. Now, a post road was any route that was approved by Congress to carry the mails. Kind of like the way Air Force One is whatever air transport the president is aboard. Some postal routes evolved from old Native American pathways. That was the case, for instance, with the old Boston to New York postal route, known in the 1600s as the King's Highway. Today, we know it as part of Interstate Route 1. 
With federal support, the postal system flourished. The mandate to move the mail in a timely fashion ushered in a dynamic era of road building and transportation advances. The government subsidized both the stagecoaches that carried the mail and the roads those stages traveled. As a result, a vital transportation network spread aggressively into the wilderness. At a critical time in the country's development, post roads connected the east with the western frontier and cities with rural backwaters. The communication that traveled along those roads is generally believed to have helped to forge an American identity from a hodgepodge of ethnic, racial, and religious backgrounds. In other words, the post office was a cradle of the concept e pluribus unum. By 1828, more than 100,000 miles of post roads networked the nation. The post offices that those roads connected were often a far cry from what we think of today as a post office. One of the most colorful descriptions comes to us from Alexis de Tocqueville. He was a French diplomat and writer who toured the United States in 1831. When he returned to France, he wrote his landmark book, Democracy in America. It included this passage. I traveled along a portion of the frontier of the United States in a sort of cart, which was termed the mail. Day and night we passed with great rapidity along the roads, which were scarcely marked out through immense forests. From time to time we came to a hut in the midst of the forest. This was a post office. The mail dropped an enormous bundle of letters at the door of this isolated dwelling, and we pursued our way at full gallop, leaving the inhabitants of the neighboring log houses to send for their share of the treasure. The Headsville Post Office was built several decades after Tocqueville's observation, but it represented that outpost in the wilderness that he had described. So when the Smithsonian agent mentioned by Ken went searching for the perfect specimen, he examined 600 old post offices and selected Headsville. Ed McDonald had interviewed the agent, Carl Sheely, back in the 1970s. He was looking for a building that included both a store and a post office, to one that had not been architecturally disturbed or repurposed in any, in any significant way, and one that was built of wood, not, not a masonry building, and also something that was small enough that could be rebuilt within the confines of the, the display area in the museum building. So those were sort of the criteria. And I think the other thing was the fact that so much of the, the merchandise was still intact in, in the store, and, and it was just essentially the way, it, the way it had been, untouched. The Smithsonian purchased the building from Ed's grandfather. Ed's dad and aunt were sorry to see the old store go. His grandfather? Not so much. When Sheely approached my grandfather, he was, he was quite fine with letting it go because that was going to put a few dollars in his pocket, and he didn't care. Uh, he was ready to let it go. The building was carefully deconstructed, board by board, transported to Washington, D.C., and reassembled at the Smithsonian. There it was both a popular exhibit and a working post office, until 2006. Ken Martin picks up the story here. In 2006, uh, following Labor Day, they were shutting down the museum for a renovation. 
uh, switching some exhibits. They were just planning to pack this up and put it in storage. And we thought that was a terrible waste of the resource and basically got uh, a loan from the Smithsonian's Museum of American History um, so we could have it here. Just like that, the Philatelic Society asked for it, and they got it. Except that it wasn't quite that simple. So um, their standard loan application is like 125 pages. They want to know everything from your earthquake zone to who are the employees working there, your security, do you have a suitable loading dock, and so forth. The special considerations for this is they wanted climate control, temperature, humidity, light. Even though uh, the building sat outside for 109 years from 1860 to 1969, they didn't want it in any, any direct sunlight hitting it. In other words, they needed a Smithsonian-quality structure to house the post office. But they got it. The Gordon and Mary Morrison Pavilion, named for two beloved members of the American Philatelic Society. It was completed and dedicated in 2007. It offered the necessary ultraviolet shields and climate controls required by the Smithsonian. So with the pavilion in place, there was just the little matter of getting the post office from D.C. to Belfont. It actually came in two refrigerated trucks. Again, it sat outside, exposed all elements for 109 years, but they wanted it transported you know, a relatively short distance from D.C. to here, probably four hours or so, in a climate-controlled truck. They disassembled it, created custom crates. I think there were 27 crates, some of them pretty big. And then it got here and basically was a giant jigsaw puzzle without really even any assembly instructions. Leonard Fiore was the local contractor who reassembled the building. The workers might not have had instructions on what to do, but they had plenty of instructions on what not to do. Couldn't put new nails in or other things like that. So it was a, a project probably unlike any that they had had before. And when it was finally in place? And actually, once this was delivered, assembled, they required almost six months before we were allowed to open it up to the public because they wanted to see hourly readings of the temperature, humidity, and light and make sure that it was stabilized. Even now that it's open to the public, strict Smithsonian guidelines must be followed. We're not, we're not even supposed to like clean the windows because I think they're concerned about chemicals, Windex, or whatever you would use, how they might affect it. I think we could probably get away using a damp rag or something, but they're very particular, you know, in wanting, wanting it preserved as, as best as possible. And what has been preserved is a truly immersive experience. When you walk through the doors of the Headsville Post Office, you're back in the 19th century. And you can imagine this space, cooled by thick walls in the summer, heated by the pot-bellied stove in the winter, its windows draped with lacy white curtains. You can imagine it beckoning to the families scattered in roughly built log homes along the nearby creek. The post offices in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and rural communities were offered the gathering place where you learned about what was going on in town, the gossip in town, a uh, place for people to, to co congregate. My dad was born in 1922, and he had some recollections of hanging around the store uh, when guys would come in and sit around the stove and talk. Said some nights it would be full of people, some nights it wouldn't. 
The post office was also a place for folks to make their mark. Literally. You have to look carefully at the bluish-green shutters that frame the doorway. It's easy to miss amid the ads for Nutcracker Tobacco and Hanford's Balsam of Myrrh to treat your bruises, cuts, and thrush. But look carefully. There were some Union troops moving through the Headsville area. Uh, must have apparently spent some time on at, at the store because there were several scratchings on the shutters where, where soldiers had signed, written their names and written a few other things uh, on, on the shutters. The faint etchings had all but disappeared until the shutters drew the careful examination of Smithsonian curators. I guess they were on the outsides of the, of the shutters during the daytime, but when the shutters were closed and the store was closed up, it protected that, that writing enough that it, was, that it was preserved, and then they treated it with uh, some sort of, of a coating that, that would uh, not oxidize readily and, and to preserve the soldiers' names on the shutters. That was something kind of special. The post office was special for other reasons. In a small town like Headsville, it was the lifeline to the wider world. Personal correspondence, newspapers, and mail-order catalogs came through the post office. It was a good place for folks to find out what was happening beyond their own little valley. In fact, law enforcement authorities distributed wanted posters that hung in post offices and provided information even about far-off crimes. And, and we have actual, some actual wanted posters. This is from the time period. It looks too new, but the paper was of a great quality then. So this one is from 1871. Um, and I guess this happened in a robbery in Salt Lake City, so a long ways away, um, where gold bars were stolen and a purse containing gold dust. So they're offering one-fourth the value for the recovery. You've got about a $2,000 reward if you provide information leading to its recovery. A reward like that would have been enticing to Henry Head, because he wouldn't have made much as a postmaster. In rural areas, postal employees were paid on commission. It was based on the number of stamps sold and the volume of mail moving through the post office. At Headsville, that wouldn't have been much. In fact, the town was so small that a letter didn't need to have a street address. I believe over here we actually have um, a letter that was addressed to Headsville, an envelope. Um, it was sent from Marfa, Texas, and they just have the person's name, Headsville. No street, nothing else. The postal employee would know every person in the town. A large wooden mail sorter behind the counter has about 30 slots. These would have been used for the people who received the mail somewhat routinely, most likely businessmen. I'd be surprised if the typical day there were more than 10 or 20 pieces of mail going out and coming in. That explains why the post office was usually connected to another business, typically a general store, but sometimes a doctor's office, a pharmacy, or the local newspaper and printing shop. These post offices were, and still are, known as contract postal units, or CPUs. We have a contractor paid $1 a year to sell USPS stamps to receive mail to, to do almost all the functions. We can do everything here except for we don't have post office boxes. So for how long can we expect the loan of this Smithsonian gem? It's a three-year renewable loan. I 
think we're on our third three-year period right now. Um, and, you know, you have to submit uh, condition reports and photos and so forth every three years to request a renewal. Any chance that it could become part of the Philatelic Society's permanent collection? I don't think we look forward to disassembling it or shipping it back. I think we'd love if they would deaccession it to us. It's not likely. Uh, I'm told that getting something deaccessioned from the Smithsonian is about as easy as getting Congress to unanimously agree on a bill. It's a challenging process, but we hope to have it for the long term. We have no intent of wanting to give it up, so hopefully it's a long time here. And how does Ed McDonald feel about that? Glad that you all have it in a safe place and are pleased with it, proud of it, and are, are taking care of it. So we'll try to make it up. We hope you do make it to this part of Pennsylvania, Ed. You'll find us right here, dead center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, consider subscribing to Dead Center so that you'll never miss a new episode. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's theme music is titled Coffee Shop and was composed by David Zesse. It's licensed by Creative Commons.